All right, well, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 10, and we're going to do a little bit of review of where we're, we've been in chapter 10, because we are going to be out of chapter 10 this morning and into chapter 11. So, um, by way of review, especially for those of us who have been here, uh, in Mark 10, 6 through 8, that's your, your clue that that's probably where you should be glancing right now. In Mark 10, 6 through 8, Jesus quoted Genesis 1, 27 and 2, 24. How are these verses relevant to divorce? So I'll go ahead and read that for us. It says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So remember, this is after uh, Jesus had reminded the Pharisees that Moses had only permitted divorce because of the, the hardness of their hearts. They're asking Jesus, trying to trip Jesus up, asking him about divorce. And this is at his answer. He said that God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So how do those verses in Genesis, Jesus' answer, relate to the issue at hand of divorce? Uh, it's up on the screen, uh, in front of you, right there, and up here. But yeah, how does how does Jesus' answer relate to divorce? This is not to separate. Okay, good. So, they're God brought them together, and they are to stay together, right? They are to remain as as God has made them, the one flesh. Any other thoughts on those verses? Why Jesus went there? God's original design. Mm-hmm. Man and woman are not autonomous. They are only a unit together. It's like, you know, yeah. like so many things that God made, they only work when they're connected together, like hydrogen and oxygen. You only have water when you have the right combination. Yes. We're just billions of things. It's all about God's design, his original intention. And so messing with God's intention is always destructive. Yeah. Yeah, so in your example, it, the chemical makeup has brought those two together and, and changed it, right? And with God's design for marriage, he has taken the two and made them into one flesh. And to, to separate that is, uh, it's really something that's irrevocable. We, I don't know, if, no, I think it was a Bible study. We went back and we looked at Hosea. Um, maybe we'll go there now just because it's a good chapter. So Hosea chapter 3. Let's see. You just have to find it first. That's, that's the issue. Uh, just read the whole thing. Hosea 3. Yeah, and this is... Sorry, before you get there, uh, this is an illustration that God is using to demonstrate his relationship with Israel. So God called Israel to himself. They are his people. And then God had uh, Hosea, uh, he, he orchestrated the events of Hosea's life to uh, replicate what is going on with Israel and their response to the Lord by uh, using his wife, Gomer, 
to, what a, what a name, right? Uh, to be a harlot. So she's actually, in chapter two, she is, I think in chapter two, she's gone out and uh, prostituted herself. And now Hosea is called to, to go ahead and buy her back. So go ahead. Hosea 3, caption, Hosea redeems his wife. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turned to other gods and loved and loved cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or be, belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. All right, so to catch that in verse 1, it talks about how the Lord loves the sons of Israel. And right after that, we see what Israel loves. They turn to other gods, and they love raisin cakes right? Uh, God loves them. The, the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe loves them, and they're worried about these raisin cakes, right? Um, and we just see, again, that's a, an illustration of what marriage is not to be. Marriage is not to be uh, a division of one flesh from another, because marriage, ultimately, in the beginning, is a picture of who we are in relation to Christ, right? And if we are picturing the the church's relationship with Christ uh, in our marriage, then to divorce is to mar that picture. Yeah, Andy. Well, and I think it's noteworthy that this is like the way that God designed it. This is before the fall. Yeah. This is, this is before sin even entered into the world. This is the way it's supposed to be. Amen. Good. All right, we need to move on. We're getting, spending too much time on our review, which is okay. It's good. All right, uh, next question. Why did Jesus tell the rich young ruler that he had to give everything away to inherit eternal life? Is that what we have to do? Do we have to give everything away to inherit eternal life? I still got my wallet in my back pocket. Am I in trouble? All right, his, his weakness in what regard? In holding him back from fully following God. All right, yeah, he didn't have this uh, trust in, in God and what God could do for him. He was still holding on to this idolatrous thing in his life, right, that was before him and God. He wasn't ready to, uh, to trust the Lord entirely, as we're called to uh, in, in coming to the Lord for for life, right? We can't have any self-trust uh, when we're coming to the Lord. Any other thoughts on that? All right. How do rulers in Christ's kingdom differ from rulers in the kingdoms of this world? This is what we looked at last week in uh, 32 through 45. We're talking about different ways that the Gentiles rule, and how they lord it over the people. Do you remember that? 
and how are Christ's servants, how are Christ's disciples called to, to differ in that? Yeah, yeah, you kind of give it away my question, right? To, to serve. So it's not that uh, Christ's disciples are lording their authority over people in a, a different way. It's not as if they're ruling in a different way, but they are completely flipping that whole paradigm on its head, right? And serving rather than being served, just as Christ did in our theme verse for all of Mark, in Mark 10, 45, says that he, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the, uh, the example that he left for the disciples who are to uh, be different. Because remember, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We're not to adopt the, the world's system of leading and having this power and prestige. That's not something that uh, has any place within Christ's kingdom. All right, well, let's move on. We're going to start in verse 46 today. So we're going to be in Mark 10, 46, and we're going to be looking at blind Bartimaeus. But before we do that, remember last week, we also looked at how Jesus was on his way down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem, right? How he has spent the majority of his time in the region of Galilee. And so up here, toward the top of the screen, that's where Galilee is, this little blue dot, that's the Sea of Galilee. And down at the bottom, it's the Dead Sea in the region of Judea. And Jesus has been ministering, the, the bulk of his ministry, up in the northern area. But now he's moving down toward Jerusalem, or up toward Jerusalem, as it says in the text that we read last week. Remember that whenever the text talks about going up to Jerusalem, it's talking about going up in elevation. You have to actually climb a, a hill, climb a mountain to get up to Jerusalem. So no matter where you're at in relation to Jerusalem, you're going up. So he was going up to Jerusalem in elevation, but down uh, geographically, right? If we're using our, our compass, northeast-south compass. Um, and in our text today, it says in verse 46 that they came to Jericho. And it was as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd that a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. So if you sat closer, you probably see the screen. Um, but Jericho is just north of Jerusalem. So Jericho is right here, just north of the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is to the west of the Dead Sea. And Jericho is actually only 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So it's fairly close, but remember they're walking on foot. But just by comparison, he is much closer than he was when he was up in Capernaum and Nazareth and in the region of Galilee. And so that's where we're at in this scene, Jericho. They were coming to Jericho. And... Um, Remember also that Jesus, um, or we can see here, rather, Jesus is spending some time in Jericho before he leaves with these two different groups that we see in verse 46. So he was leaving with his disciples and with a large crowd. So it's these mixed group. The disciples likely refers to more than just the 12 disciples. Remember, Jesus had many disciples. But then there were other people who were following Jesus as well because they were getting ready to have the, the Passover feast. It, we're in chapter 11. We're getting into Passion Week, 
the end, the last week of Jesus' life. And during Passover, everybody went to the temple that was at Jerusalem. And so prior to the, the Passover week, or outside of Passover week, there were maybe ten to 30,000 people that were within Jerusalem. And then during Passover week, that number grew by 150,000. So tons and tons of people coming from all over the place who are landing in Jerusalem. And this group is, uh, seems like they're coming along with Jesus, they're following alongside of him. And on his way out of Jericho, rather, Jesus is approached by a man named Bartimaeus. That's a pretty sweet name, right? If you still need a, a baby name to consider, Bartimaeus, that'd be something else. So just uh, looking at this text, consider what it is that we can learn about this man named Bartimaeus. I'll go ahead and read down through once again, but be listening for what it is that we learn about this guy Bartimaeus. So starting in verse 46, it says, Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he is calling you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. And so just observing this passage, what are some things that we learn about Bartimaeus in this text? Persistent. Yes, he's persisting. He wasn't going to stop calling out just because somebody told him to sit down and be quiet, right? What else? Amen. He has a, a great recognition that seems like a bunch of these other people around Jesus just don't. We've talked about up to this point, even the disciples are kind of murky on their understanding of who Jesus is, right? What else? Why is he calling out to Jesus in the first place? Okay, that's why he's calling out to Jesus as opposed to the people next to Jesus, right? But what is he calling out to Jesus for? All right, to heal him because of his blindness, right? It's also weird that they call him out by name. A lot of these miracles are kind of just to unnamed people, like just a random blind dude. But this guy's yeah. Bartimaeus, the blind guy. Yes. Son of Timaeus. Timaeus. Yep. Yeah, that's what his name means. Bar means son of, right? So Bar Timaeus is uh -huh. son of Timaeus. So a little bit redundant. Yeah, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Well, good. Yeah, I jotted down some things. I guess I didn't jot them down. I typed them up. Um, so we see that he is blind, that he's a, a beggar, which is like right along line with being blind. That's what blind people did in the day. They would go out and beg because they couldn't do anything else. Um, that's why he was sitting by the road. He was a son of Timaeus. He was told to be quiet repeatedly. People just 
not even having any compassion or consideration for his need or where he's at in life. They're just, be quiet. Uh, Jesus doesn't want to hear from you. You're, you're not worthy to speak up. And then, as Andy pointed out, he is persistently crying out to the Lord. He's not going to stop. He's going to keep crying out to Jesus because he wanted to gain, regain his sight. And he believed in Jesus. Jesus told him at the end, your faith has made you well. So he had faith in Christ, and this faith uh, was fruitful. It produced a fruit um, that Jesus healed this man. He made him well. Um, so he was um, yeah, told to be quiet, told to sit down. He wasn't having any of that. And beyond this, we see that he had an intimate knowledge of the Old Testament and understanding of who Jesus is. Just like Jerry pointed out, he knew that um, this was the place to go. Jesus was the Messiah. He had to go to Jesus if he wanted answers for, um, for his issue, for his problem. And this is the first time throughout Mark's gospel we see this phrase, this title of son of David being used of Jesus. How did this man have such a great intimate knowledge about who Jesus is? Have any thoughts, any speculations as to how this blind dude on the side of the road knew about Jesus? Yeah, he, he wasn't busy, caught up in everything else that you and I are doing throughout the week, right? Just working and uh, getting up and life is busy, right? And he was sitting there. He did have time to think about it. How do you think he would know about Jesus in the first place? Probably wasn't reading the Bible every morning, I guess. No, yeah. <laughs> Very astute, Sam. Being blind, he probably listened to everything that's going on around him. He heard all the gossip, all the news, all Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus, he was, uh, his popularity is just off the charts by this point, right? Everybody who knew who Jesus was, even though he was, you know, up in Galilee, that wasn't super far away, that's still within Israel. Jesus's popularity is astounding. Everybody was talking about him. So surely, Bartimaeus, this blind guy, had heard reports about what Jesus had done and how Jesus had healed other blind people. Um, just uh, You hear that as a blind man, and you're going to be intrigued, right? Your interest is going to be more than piqued, hearing about uh, not just the blind people that Jesus healed, but all these other miracles that he performed, these demons that he had cast out. Uh, we are now at the end of Jesus' ministry, right up to the very last week of his time on earth. After three years of ministry, his name has gained quite some popularity. And remember that Jesus is heading down to Jerusalem. That is his goal. That has been his goal throughout his whole ministry. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save the lost, right? And so even though he has his eyes fixed on the cross and what he has to do at Jerusalem, um, on what the Father has called him to do, he still takes time to show this blind beggar some consideration, some compassion, uh, to, to focus on Bartimaeus and this problem that he has. All right, well, I want to go back a little bit and spend some time looking at this title that Bartimaeus uses of Jesus, this incredible title of Son of David. Any thoughts as to where that comes from, that title originates? 
Uh, we see it in the Psalms for sure. Um, it has its importance, of course, from David, right? King David of Israel. Um, I want to take us back to the Davidic covenant, when the Davidic covenant was established back in 2 Samuel 7. So go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel 7, back in your Old Testament, just maybe a quarter of the way through. And what's going on in the beginning of this chapter is that David had wanted to build a house for the Lord. He says, I got this, this great big mansion, look at where I'm living, and uh, we have a, a tent, this tabernacle for the Lord. He said, that's not okay, that's ought not to be, he wanted to build a temple. And God said, well, nope, your hands are, are too bloody. You've killed too many people. You're not the man to, to build the temple for me. Your son is going to do it. And then uh, we have this Davidic covenant, this promise that God makes to David. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'll go ahead and start in verse 9. So God had already told him, no, you're not going to build me a house, right? And then in verse 9, It says, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are of the earth. So we see in that verse that God is telling David, no, I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to establish your name. Verse 10, I will also appoint a place for my people, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So remember, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, and the Lord is saying, no, I'm going to build a house for you. Uh, In verse 12, it says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, not your descendants, but your descendant who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And so here we see this promise, this covenant that God is making with David. And it's not just a a simple one aspect covenant. There are three different aspects to this covenant. We see that God promises David a house, God promises David a kingdom, and God promises David a throne. And in each one of those promises, he amends it and says that this is going to be a a forever promise. You're going to have this house forever, this throne forever, this kingdom is going to be something that's never going to pass away. It will be yours forever. I will establish his kingdom. I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. This is an incredible promise, a a big deal promise that God is making with David. And in our minds, maybe you're already jumping and thinking, okay, well, the the descendant of David who's going to reign on this throne and have this authority forever, that's got to be Jesus, right? And, and you're not wrong in thinking that. Uh, I think that Jesus is definitely in view with this covenant. But we have to be careful not to jump there too quickly because uh, just like with a lot of Old Testament prophecies, there's a, a dual fulfillment in this prophecy. Two different uh, individuals that he has in mind. If you look at verse 14, 
it says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men. So that automatically can't be talking about Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't commit any iniquity. He doesn't need any correction. So this is talking not about Jesus, but about Solomon, David's uh, direct descendant, right? His son. And so let's turn to 1 Corinthians, and we'll look at this concept of this dual fulfillment and how it is Solomon that is actually in view most immediately. So 1 Chronicles chapter 22 And could I get somebody to read verses 7 through 10? 1 Chronicles 22, 7 through 10, when you get there. Anybody got that for us? Okay. Yes, please. So there we see very directly that Solomon is named, right, as the one who's going to build this house for the Lord. However, again, at the end, we're reminded that his throne will be established over Israel forever. And Solomon didn't live forever, right? And there were even periods of time when Israel wasn't in control of their own destiny. They were... Uh, captured by Assyria, they were captured by Babylon and, and taken off in captivity. And so we have to still wonder uh, how this all ends up if Solomon is no longer living, no longer on that throne. Uh, this other passage, Second Chronicles 7, verses 16 through 20, it says... Uh, similar thing says, For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my commandments. That's important. So this is talking about how um, the, the promise that's made to Solomon is conditional that Solomon must keep his statutes and his ordinances. Then I will establish your throne as I, as I covenanted with your father David, saying you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land which I have given you. And this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among my peoples. So God made this promise to David, and now he's turning to Solomon, and he's saying, if you want to be the man through whom this promise is fulfilled, if you want to be the man who has this established, you need to be obedient. And we know that Solomon, uh, he had his, his highs and his lows, but he wasn't always obedient. 
And so we see that he was the one who was immediately in view when God made this promise to David, but not the one who was ultimately in view. Because, as I mentioned, Solomon lived and died, right? And then Assyria came in and conquered Israel and took him off. And uh, Babylon came in and conquered Judah and, and took him off. And so we're still left with this big kind of question mark, like, what is going on? Where is this son of David? How is this promise that God made, the, the God who is not a man that he should lie, he's not a son of man that he should repent, he keeps his promises. How is this promise going to be fulfilled? And we see that even after these captivities, there are still these hopes for the son of David to be coming. People are still looking for the son of David. Uh, will somebody turn to Jeremiah 23? Read that passage in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. This is, again, after, uh, long after Solomon and during the captivity that, um, the, the Babylonian captivity. All right, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. Somebody there? Thus says the Lord God of Israel, like these good things, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have set out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them. And I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them in part to know me. For I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. For they will return to me with their whole heart. But like the bad figs, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed, thus says the Lord, so I will abandon Zedekiah king of Judah and his officials and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. All right. I don't know if I'm lost or if you're lost. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out because it sounded like it was almost like relevant. But yeah. Yes. So 23.5 is, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which Amen. he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Okay, good. So, this is, again, after Solomon has already lived and died, and the Lord is saying, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. This son of David is still to be raised up even after Solomon has lived and died. And we see these promises of the Davidic covenant repeated throughout here, and, and some of what you were reading even, that they will go into the land, they will possess this land forever. They will have this house, this dynasty, this kingdom that will not be taken away from them. Was it that second passage up there in 33 that you were reading? No, I was in 24. You were in 24? Okay, good. All right, I'll go ahead and grab that passage in 33, starting in verse 14. And says, Behold, days are coming, not days are past, but days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. 
Now hold on there for just a second, because we've been talking in our, our Mark series, and we will get back to Mark, I promise. I know we've taken a deviation to talk about David. But we've been talking about how people had this misunderstanding, this misconception of who Jesus was and what the Messiah was coming to do. And we can be harsh on them thinking that they, they wanted a king to raise up to come in and to, to kick out the Romans. But this verse right here kind of implies that, that he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. And Jesus will do that in his second coming. But in his first coming, that wasn't his purpose. And so we should be a little bit more sympathetic toward those people who had that misunderstanding. Uh, but let's keep going. Verse 16 of Jeremiah 33. It says, In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. That hasn't happened. Just turn on the news. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Now, remember, he's saying this while they're in captivity, right? But he, he, the Lord is reminding his people through Jeremiah of this promise that he made previously, even while they're in captivity. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying... Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that the day and the night will not be in their appropriate time. So if you can stop the sun from shining, if you can stop the moon from casting out its light, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests, my ministers." As the host of heaven cannot be counted, and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. So this is God just reminding his people, even in this time of uh, doubt and desperation, when they're not sure what's going to happen, they're not uh, confident in the promise that God has already made. He's saying, no, I, I promise you, I assure you, that as long as you look up and you see the, the sun and the moon and the stars as long as you are unable to, to count the sand of the sea, um, I will be God. I will fulfill this promise, and you will multiply even beyond the sand of the sea, beyond the, the hosts of heaven. And so they are still looking for the son of David, even after the, the direct descendant of David, Solomon, has lived and died. And then we get to the New Testament. Let's go ahead and turn and see how the New Testament opens up in the book of Matthew. So in, I'm in Mark. I don't want to be in Mark right now. In Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, uh, who was Matthew writing to again? What was his audience? The Jews, right? He's writing to the Jewish people um, who would know all about this promise to David, all about this covenant that God had made to David. And he says, starting off his gospel, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Mark takes till almost the end of chapter 10 before he mentions the son of David. Matthew starts off right off the bat. He says, this is the Messiah. This is the son of David. This is the one that God made this promise to, and, and he is here. And then he gives his genealogy to back up the fact that he is, in fact, the son of David, the son of Abraham hearkening to not only the, the covenantal promise that he had made through or with David, but also with Abraham as well. And then Luke in 
Luke 1, 27, we see uh, this interaction with Mary and the angel talking to Mary. And what he says is uh, pretty incredible. In verse 27 of Luke 1, it says, um, again, this is Gabriel talking to her, that to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendant of descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So, again, this is incredible. that This promise that was made a thousand years before to David is now coming to fruition. This angel is talking to this young girl saying that the son of David is going to come forth from your womb. Uh, this title has a lot more meaning and impact and importance than I think we normally give to it. So when this man, this blind beggar of a man, Bartimaeus, was calling out to Jesus and he was calling him the son of David, he was saying a lot more than just, I want to see. He was calling out to him and saying, I know that you're the Messiah. I know that you are the one who's going to sit on the throne of David. You are the fulfillment of this promise that, again, is a thousand years old, uh, that you are the one who is the Messiah who is able to give me not only my sight, but my life. Uh, it's a, a beautiful title that has not only past implications, but even future implications. When Jesus will come and he will reign and he will sit on his throne, he will make all things new and all things right and bring that absolute peace to Israel, to Judah, where they don't have these constant wars, these constant battles that we're hearing about and reading about even today. And remember that even Jesus said that we need to be on guard because there are going to be mockers and scoffers who are going to say, well, where is, where is your Lord? Where is Jesus at? It's been so many years and, and he's still not here, right? And we experience that even today. Hey, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said he was coming back. You know, I, I think it's been long enough. He should have come back. Well, surely Jesus was experiencing some of that even himself then, 1,000 years after this promise that God made to David. Uh, I have no doubt that there were scoffers and mockers then that would point back to this promise that God made to David and say, where is the son of David? Where, where is he at? God made this promise to David that he would never, have a, he would never lack a man to sit on his throne. Uh, what's going on? What is he doing? Because men just think in our own ways and we're, God's ways are higher than man's ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And Surely there were mockers, even in Jesus' day. And then blind Bartimaeus has the, the vision. He has a sight to see Jesus, even though he doesn't have the, the physical sight. God has given him the ability to know that Jesus is the son of David. Any thoughts or questions on the son of David? I know that was a lot, but I think it's important. Bartimaeus holding Jesus to an earthly kingdom? Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, because that was a 
a mystery that was kind of concealed in the Old Testament that wasn't really revealed until the New Testament, that there's a, a gap of time in between. And so uh, I'm sure that if we were there, we would have that same expectation because there are other Old Testament passages where the, the first verse talks about how Jesus is going to come in, in humility, and the second verse talks about how he's going to come and reign. And it, it's pretty much impossible to distinguish between the two. Uh, we have a great advantage in having this period of time to be able to look back on and say, okay, well, this is what was going on. Um, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But they were there in the moment, so I'm sure that he had some expectations that Jesus would rule and reign in his physical kingdom uh, on the earth then. And I think Jesus will reign in a physical kingdom on the earth just later. Yeah. And anointed their eyes. Um, but here and in other places, uh, the ruler's daughter is dying. Jairus' daughter? Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. And they were approaching Jesus, and he was saying, you know, come help my daughter. And he's like, go. Your daughter is oh, yeah. Home. The centurion. Yeah. I mean, some people he touched, some people he's just like, your faith yeah. has made you well. The, the woman that touched him, you know, when he's in the middle of the crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jesus used different means and methods, yeah. right? It wasn't always the same. He didn't have a, a formula that he stuck to. No. Uh, but we can see uh, in many of those instances his compassion showing through where, yeah, he, he touched the the woman and the leper, he, he touched the leper, this man who wasn't allowed to be touched, right? He was unclean. And then again, this man, blind Bartimaeus, Jesus taking the time right at the end of his life, knowing that his life was coming to an end. He had just got done telling the disciples that he was going to lay down his life. And he takes time out to, to show love to this man. Actually, there were two men. Matthew's account says that there were two of them. Uh, Bartimaeus was just, just must have been the more prominent one. Perhaps he was the one who actually verbalize the fact that he was the son of David. And so Mark focused on him. Yeah, yeah, he was the one who wouldn't shut up. His other friend might have shut up, right? But Bartimaeus, nope, not going to have it. All right, well, let's keep going on. Um, We won't spend as much time on this, but let's look in chapter 11 at the the triumphal entry, keeping in mind everything we just learned about Jesus and his uh, identity as the son of David. So I'll go ahead and read the first seven verses here. Mark 11, 1 through 7. It says, As they approached Jerusalem, at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, what are you Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at its door, tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And so this scene of Jesus telling them what to expect um, and it 
playing out exactly as he had told them uh, is a demonstration of his sovereignty, of the fact that he is in control of everything, every minute detail uh, Jesus is not only aware of, but in control of. And it acts as a fulfillment even of Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah. Somebody want to make their way to Zechariah 9.9 and read us this prophecy about this cult and uh, what is being fulfilled here in the New Testament. Zechariah is in the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah, Malachi. So, second to last book of the Old Testament. Who's got Zechariah 9.9? Andy is flipping the pages digitally to Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, the king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of the donkey. All right. Notice how it describes Jesus in this verse. It says that he is coming to you just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. And a donkey really was a a symbol, a picture of humility. Uh, He wasn't coming on a horse. He wasn't coming in power and authority, again, as people thought that he would. But he came humbly in humility, mounted on a donkey. And critics will often uh, offer their critique that Jesus here was merely manipulating the situation, just as... um, he was trying to have this self-fulfilled prophecy, right? That he was coming into town mounted on a donkey. And we first have to recognize that he wasn't personally involved, right? He had commissioned his disciples to go off and told them where to find this donkey and what to do and what to say and who they might meet, etc. But secondly, we also have to realize that there are many other prophecies that are just absolutely outside of Jesus' control, right? In Micah 5.2, talking about how you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, are going to uh, be the one through whom this king comes, um, that the king will rise up out of this small, insignificant city. And Jesus had no power or uh, ability to influence where he was born. Uh, Psalm 22, there are a number of things talking about how they will pierce his hands and his feet, how he'll be able to count all of his bones. He had no control over whether or not his bones were broken or uh, they, them dividing his garments and casting lots over his garments. That's not something that he could have twisted or manipulated at all. That he came up out of Egypt, that he would be called from Nazareth, that he would be sold for silver, that he would be born of a virgin. These are different uh, prophecies that Jesus had no control over, that he couldn't manipulate in any way. Um, So yeah, we see here, he's coming in lowly and riding on a donkey. And if we look at what happens next in verses... 8 through 10, it says that many had spread their coats on the road. So uh, first it was the disciples who spread out their coats. Verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and they put their coats on it and he sat on it. And then following that, many spread their coats out on the road. Others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the coming Father, the coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest. And so uh, we see that this is a mark of a royal welcome to lay out their coats and to lay out these branches. Uh, John tells us that they were uh, palm branches, right? Branches from a palm tree. They were laying them out for Jesus. Back in 2 Kings 9.13, it says that they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. So this was, uh, again, just a, a mark of a royal welcome, uh, welcoming in this king. Again, going back to their mindset, they wanted Jesus to come in and to reign and rule. He wasn't coming in on a horse. He wasn't coming in to, to conquer. He was coming in lowly, riding on a donkey, humbly, ready to serve, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. And uh, this whole misunderstanding of who Jesus is, it spread even to the disciples. So they were confused. We looked at last week that even preceding his death, as, as Jesus was predicting his death, uh, James and John, they're not worried about Jesus. They're worried about where they're going to place in the kingdom. They want to rule and reign at the right and left hand of Jesus because they're, they're misunderstanding what it is that he's doing. They're thinking that he's coming in to rule and to reign, to set things right. And the crowd here was saying all the right things, right? In verses 9 and 10, they're saying, uh, Hosanna, shouting out Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. These are good and right things that they should have been saying and proclaiming. And they were coming right to the edge of proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. But remember that God is one who looks at the heart. God isn't concerned with our, our outward appearance, with what comes out of our mouth. He's concerned with our heart and where we're at uh, internally. John Grasmick says, Hosanna in the highest and blessed and he who comes in the name of the Lord. Though these are word, though these words are not a messianic title, this crowd of pilgrims applies them to Jesus, perhaps with messianic overtones, but they stopped short of identifying Jesus as the Messiah. So they came right up to the edge, right up to the brink of calling him Messiah. Uh, I have no doubt that some of them were thinking that in their mind, but again, they were looking for a political ruler. They were looking for somebody to come in and to take care of Rome, and to rescue them from Rome. Remember that it's individuals within this same group that within the week are going to be shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. They're going to be there watching Jesus go to the cross. The same people who are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, shouting, crucify him, just days after this. Um, and again, going back to, to Bartimaeus, realizing that he was, he was blind, but he could see that Jesus was the, the son of David. Um, comparing him with the vast majority of Israel who remained spiritually blind, uh, including the, the rich young ruler, right? The rich young ruler, he had all kinds of physical possessions. He didn't give up any of them to, to follow after Jesus. And uh, blind Bartimaeus, he, he was calling out to Jesus. He threw his cloak aside, his, his one possession, so that he could go and see Jesus, um, and he gained much more than just his eyesight. And as incredible 
as the title, the son of David, is, realizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of this, that he is the, the king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Um, as much as it highlights Jesus' authority and position and power, he still humbled himself immensely in taking the, the claim of that title. Uh, I want to close out with this quote from Augustine. He says, The master of humility is Christ, who humbled himself and became obedient even to death, even the death of a cross. Thus he does not lose his divinity when he teaches us humility. What great thing was it to the king of the ages to become the king of humanity? For Christ was not the king of Israel so that he might exact a tax or equip an army with weaponry and visible, visibly vanquish an enemy. He was the king of Israel in that he rules minds, in that he gives counsel for eternity, in that he leads into the kingdom of heaven for those who believe, hope and love. It is a condescension, not an advancement, for one who is the Son of God, equal to the Father, the Word through whom all things were made to become king of Israel. It is an indi indication of pity, not an increase of power. I thought that he, he put that really well because... Again, the, the title, the king, the son of David, that is like the, the highest title that we could bestow on anybody. Jesus had to humble himself from his throne on high to, to take that title, to, to play that role of the son of David, to be the fulfillment, to be the, the promise that, the fulfillment of the promise that the father had made a thousand years before. It's pretty cool stuff. All right, we are out of time. We will pray and fellowship. God, thank you again for who you are, for your immense humility that you, the, the creator of all, the, the king of all, took on flesh to become lower than the angels, to become like one of us, your, your creatures, to lay down your life for us. We're unworthy, but we're thankful and grateful. We love you and praise you. Amen.